Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing discussion about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that Research communication is a place and time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something we make. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors and reviewers, to editors and executives, as well as to scholars of communication and professionals in communication, all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guest today is John Bond, a publishing consultant at Riverwinds Consulting. John founded Riverwinds to help publishers, associations, and authors find answers to everyday challenges. John has been in scholarly publishing for over 25 years. Starting as an assistant editor, he eventually became senior vice president and then chief content officer for a multi-million dollar international medical publisher. Today, he calls upon a significant network of partners, specialists, and freelancers to provide a range of services in a timely and cost-effective manner. So, let's begin today's episode, John Bond, on scholarly communication. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hello, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, Maybe to kick off our uh, discussion here to maybe kind of set a common ground upon two things, uh, which will probably be something that we return to throughout uh, our discussion. And that is, first, that scientists need and also want, actually, help communicating. Nonetheless, scientists also naturally have greater interest in their research, and they'll tend to view the communication as sort of the wrap-up end of things. So I'll give you a moment to respond to that in a moment, but that's that first bit of common ground. The second is that there is definitely a palette of services on offer, and it's growing, and it's there to prepare scientists to become authors, but in some ways it may not be growing fast enough or in the right directions. And unfortunately, education in this area for scientists seems to be lagging. Now, if I put those two blocks, those two things in front of you as saying, hey, this is where we'll build off of, would, where would you stand upon them? I think uh, when we start talking about academics, researchers, uh, prospective authors. Uh, Education is an important component when it comes to their writing or publishing journey. They spend so many hours and so many years becoming educated in their field or subject matter of choice. And there is woefully 
little time in there to learn about ancillary items such as writing and publishing, even though they can be instrumental to their career. So uh, I empathize with the authors uh, that become frustrated with the publishing process. Um, they have the goods, they have the great ideas, they have the great research, but sometimes can feel frustrated by the arcaneness of the journey or the labyrinthian nature of the journey. They will uh, start to proceed down a path and be frustrated and wonder why uh, it's not easier than it is. Many authors, many prospective authors or many academics will have not taken a writing class maybe since their baccalaureate days. And when they did take one then, it may not have been geared towards uh, specialized or academic writing. It may have been a, a general writing class. There's such great opportunities for uh, authors to develop parallel skills uh, in writing and in publishing with a fairly small amount of time without taking away from their chosen focus or endeavor. That the education in writing and publishing can come in many forms. There are some excellent books out there that I gladly recommend to anybody offline. There are some uh, great uh, podcasts, this being one of them. There are some great uh, video channels, uh, and there are some great courses. But there's also a live education, uh, a one-on-one -on -one education with a coach or a consultant such as myself or many other very qualified ones out there that can help ease that journey. The, the, the services uh, vary from simply uh, grammar or editing services to more sophisticated ones that dive into helping with the actual publishing process. Um, these services or this education are tremendously beneficial to the author. Can they uh, accomplish their goals on their own? Likely they can. But many times this education, whether it's in the form of a book or a course or working with somebody, increases the possibility of great results. And what do I mean by that? Some people are going to try to get their material published, and I'm sad to say some may end up being frustrated and never getting published. Uh, others may get published, but may end up getting published in a lesser journal. And when I say lesser, what I mean is one that uh, has a lower or no impact factor or little distribution uh, or little exposure uh, in their chosen field, or they may end up getting published in a journal with an impact factor or significant results, but perhaps their material or their manuscript is not as weighty or valuable as it could be, and it ends up with lesser citations, fewer downloads. So from that point of view, you're looking to have the greatest results uh, that your material can possibly achieve in, on the highest platform or the highest quality journal and to get the most notice 
uh, that you can possibly get with uh, when it comes down to downloads, citations. Uh, so this is the value of that education, which sometimes is absent from an academic's or researcher's career. That being able to go out there, understand the process, take advantage of the process, and end up with the best results for your material. Uh, th that's really my thoughts, Daniel, to, to the two points that you're pulling together there. Yeah, and, and to just pick right up there where you left off, I mean, because that's what you would do with the rest of your research. You know, if you were developing a methodology that was, say, loose-ended, you would be looking to optimize. You know, if you were trying to increase sample sizes in some sort of a study, you would be looking to see, well, how did other people do it? How can I do it more effectively? If you are writing an article, the thinking should really be the same. And what, and, and this is something I would really like to ask you with your deep experience in the field of consulting. It's been my experience anyway, helping scientists write that there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect there because of the closeness of the results of the methods to their actual research content. It seems natural to continue thinking like a scientist there. Whereas when it comes to the text, it's suddenly as if they were in English class all over again, right? <laughs> and and, and there, there's this jump that they make over to, well, I've got to do it correct. Instead of seeing ways of, I want to take control over this and do it best for my own purposes. Yeah, let's, let's use two different examples. Let's use somebody that has a fabulous idea or a fabulous study or a fabulous research that they've done. The purest version is, in the marketplace of ideas, my idea should stand by itself. The, the mountain should come to my idea. And in this sense, uh, I really wish that was the media environment we lived in. But it's a noisy environment out there. There are a lot of articles, there are a lot of ideas that are competing for attention, many of which are winning because of how loud they are yelling in the marketplace. And when I say how loud they're yelling, how much they're being promoted on social media or through news articles or through videos or tweets or through TikTok, I'm not criticizing those, but you are competing with very loud ideas that are out there. So even if you have a great idea, you have to understand it's a crowded marketplace that you're competing against. And you have to, as an author, understand that uh, your uh, great idea uh, may not reach the intended audience. Let's take a second example. I know of people that uh, are frustrated because they'll be on uh, a tenure track and they'll learn that they have to publish X number of articles in X type of journals. They're reluctant to do this sometimes and may not be focused solely on research or the marketplace of ideas. They're simply interested in checking a box to say that they've done this. So they become shy at that point of how do I do this what work am I going to propose? What work am I going to do? This is a fair number of authors that are seeking publication 
because of a promotional need or a tenure need or maybe to a, a, a research grant requirement. So with these individuals, they're even more, I'm going to use the word shy again, they're even more shy about doing this and are reluctant to seek out the information that they need to optimize their chances of having this occur. So many times people either feel that their idea should be the sole driver of their success or uh, they are reluctant to seek out the tools that will enable them to achieve their goal. And those tools could be education, could be courses, could be books, could be many things. It's not just talking to a coach or a consultant. So there are many great opportunities at the end of the day, what people usually end up doing, what authors usually end up doing, is relying on an experienced co-author, which is great if that is the situation that you find yourself in, or they end up relying in the, relying on the person in the office next door to them. They'll walk over and say, I have an article I'd like to get published. We're both in the same area. What journal should I send it to? How do I do that? How did you do that? And while that's good education, it really is usually limited to one or two people's experience, and it's just passed down from person to person. It may be great, but it may not be optimal, and it may not help you along your publication journey. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a really interesting scenario and a very common one, an experience I've had as well seeing that uh, I mean that's the way actually scientists generally do their work. They they look for the colleague or they observe they have the colleague who's doing it somehow slightly better. And you know that's what I mean by this scientist mentality, if you like. And it carries over also at some point into writing because of the practicalities of needing to get out you know an article. But but the scenario that you've just described is for me sort of this recurring idea I've had of okay, well how do these certain things match up? Instruction versus experience. The scenario you've just described is, let's say, closer to peer experience, right? You go through it. It's, it's, it's not even a learning on the job. It's just doing the job, so to speak. And then the instruction, the exact opposite of that would be to literally extract somebody from their lab, bring them into a place that you know gives them the entire rudiments of publication, and then drop them back over in and say goodbye. I mean, so if we had those two sorts of extremes. That that would be what I have in mind as instruction and experience. What about something along the lines, and, and this uh, is an opportunity for you also to talk about the work that uh, Riverwinds Consulting does, because it seems to be closer aligned to that, a more sort of enhanced experience or an instructive experience, if we could find some sort of middle ground there. And let's talk about the industry in general. I mean, I, I, I would certainly welcome the opportunity to talk about of the work I do, but I want to talk about what the industry does. There, there are individuals that are coaches or consultants such as myself that may help with a book or a textbook or a monograph or journal article project. Um, and then there are larger companies that do this. But the industry is really in its infancy right now because many authors, many researchers prefer to go it alone rely on a co-author or rely on the person in the office next door, most people are going to go down the journey, go down the road, I'm going to say blindly, uh, and 
their experience will be limited to uh, the people in that office next door or their co-author. Many times that will suffice. But the industry that is growing up to support authors and researchers uh, is uh, can add value and can potentially increase the possibility of publication or publication with greater results or publication with a higher impact journal or a, a book publisher with, with greater distribution. That's really the advantage that the author services industry brings, whether with a large company or with an individual. Many times people will, many authors will pigeonhole uh, this work into editing. And editing's an extremely valuable service well, I guess where it has greatest value is if you're if English is not your first language and you are seeking to publish in an English language journal. This may help with the basics of a, a, a manuscript or an article. If English is your first language, I usually remind people that the grammar check software, the sophisticated grammar check software, Grammarly is one example, paired with you reading your manuscript aloud or having the computer reading aloud to you many times serves you just as well as going to an editor. So people will pigeonhole these services as editing, and that is very important. But really being educated about the process, being educated about what's going on in publishing is essential. People, authors will know maybe the top journal in their field and know it well, but they may not know the ecosystem of publications that are around it, whether they are multidisciplinary uh, or ones that maybe are number two or three in their field. I suggest to authors to really understand the industry What's going on with open access? What's going on with subscription publications? What's going on with predatory publication, predatory publishing? Everybody's worry, of course. But to understand these and not just choose one or two journals to understand the array of options that are open to you. Two of the best resources are to uh, go to individual journals, guidelines for authors or information for authors, they go by the same name sometimes, and then the mission statements that are online for target journals. These documents are tremendously informative and are required reading before you would submit to any journal. So these are very, very valuable documents that can become, that can help educate you uh, another, the second valuable resource is a journal, a journal selector that may be available to website. Some of these are for a fee. Some of them are free, but they help you put in your parameters and help you decide which journals might be right for you based on your topic and interest. If, you, if you're unable to locate these, feel free to contact me and I'll send you a list of journal indicators journal selectors. So these types of uh, tools 
are very valuable and working with either a company or an individual. These are just two examples of tools that can help you increase the possibility of getting published as well as increasing the results that you might achieve with a, a, a journal with a greater impact factor, therefore having greater downloads and greater citations. You mentioned earlier the different resources out there or services out there. You talked about books or courses or consulting. Consulting, you've just unpacked for us a bit here. Um, I would like also for listeners to name at this point um, your own video courses, which is really just a, an encyclopedia of uh, scholarly publishing. Um, these are linked to in the show notes uh, at YouTube, and this would be one of the first harbors I would send people into who want to get a sense of, as you're saying, well, what is the entire landscape into which my words are actually now going? Another is uh, also from you, uh, which I'll also link to in the show notes, the the little guide to getting your journal article published. And um, maybe just one comment on the title, The Littleness. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a big book, but it's as big as any other guide out there um, <laughs> uh, that, that people uh, turn to in, in uh, the need to understand, okay, what is the entire process? And this guide covers, this is not a writing guide. This is a guide that really gives also just as you've been describing, John, the full picture, right? I mean, it even has a number of chapters covering post-publication, where most authors would feel, hold on, right? You know, <laughs> I'm, I've finished, I've succeeded. Actually, you haven't, because the difference between, and maybe we can carry on with this thought, the difference between publication and citation is, in, in, in the course of a career, really the huge and deciding factor, isn't it? Well, first, thank you for the mention of the of the YouTube channel and uh, of the books. Um, I am a, a big fan of discussing the the necessity of marketing and promoting your journal article or your book, uh, and, and not just feeling that uh, the publisher or the marketplace of ideas or the journal are responsible for that. I encourage authors to see uh, their career in researching and writing and in academia uh, as a long one and as an uh, arc uh, that you are on. Everybody starts as a beginner. Everybody that has 200 publications on their CV started out with one at the very beginning. So to plan for quality and to plan for impact in your field is essential as you start. Part of these things is by you realizing you're in that noisy marketplace of ideas. I encourage every author early on to secure a URL with their name that allows you to have a hub away from where your academic site might be that you're able to list and promote your interest in publications. I, I went and looked for johnbond.com to see if it was available. It was not. So I came up with books by John Bond and .com. And you can surely do the same thing with your name and find some variation. So what might be at this site? It might be uh, your CV. It might be the articles or books that you're associated with. But you also might just have musings of your interests or your the research that you're working with. But what does this do? It establish you, establishes you as the expert you are, as well as lets you uh, refer people to the site 
and starts a dialogue with potential co-authors, collaborators, reviewers of your work, people that may want to interview you. So it's important early on to have a hub uh, with a website such as uh, such as the one I'm uh, discussing. And then also to choose one social media channel uh, and then uh, perfect it from a professional point of view. I know social media has gotten a black eye, uh, deservedly so, over the past few years. But choose one that's most common in your field. For instance, I've chosen LinkedIn. Uh, it's one I feel is the most professional. And that's the one that I plow my efforts into. Find the one that uh, most people participate in. Uh, don't just post about yourself, but post about what's going on in your field and interact with the people that, uh, that are in your field as well. Doing these types of act activities will ensure that you're part of the promotion and marketing of your work through your entire career, and it's not just left to the publisher. And that's just an interesting perspective uh, because I, I do believe it's going to be an eye-opener for some researchers out there, perhaps even early career researchers or mid-career mid researchers, less so perhaps than later career, um, because it, it's it's about like a communication of the communication. And, you know, the work's been done, but then you continue talking about the work. And, and, and this kind of brings me back to this idea of, okay, well, what is that common ground that I was establishing up there at the beginning of our interview of what is then the view inside of the sciences? Um, if we may, let's just limit for the moment the discussion to that. So I'm thinking, you know, chemistry, physics, biology, even maybe interdisciplinary areas like um, um, computer science and so on. But what is the view from inside there then of the communication in relation to their actual, what what they would refer to as their actual research um, work. Um, I, I often, with the people I work together with, call it the text work as opposed to, you know, the research, research work or the research focus work. And the more that I spend time with somebody on a project, the more and more they tend to appreciate the integrality of that text work together with the actual so-called research focus work, right? And I, w I would like to have, again, your your experience on this as to what is the usefulness of, let's say, just even creating awareness in, in this almost philosophical question of how form and content there are tied together. Yeah, well, the, 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 the circle aspect of it, the interconnectedness of it, uh, is is critical, and I, I can't emphasize it enough how your ideas at the beginning, your work, the research, as you've said, the execution of it, the writing of it, uh, and then, as I've said it, as I've said, the marketing promotion of it, all of these are connected, and they're a, a virtuous circle that starts over after the article's published and starts with the next article or the next book that's building upon one one another. Uh, your, su your success long-term, I would contend in academia or in your writing career, are all connected to these different threads that you enumerated. Uh, I do think there is a, a reluctance by uh, some uh, to embrace my marketing and promotion uh, message. And all I'm trying to do is 
move the dial with people one or two points. So if you've embraced this idea and you think on a scale of one to 10, marketing and promoting the work and having it connected from the very start is a seven, I'm just trying to move you to an eight or a nine. If you think this is nonsense and this is not what scientists or authors should be doing and you're at a two, I'm just trying to move you to a four. I'm trying to for you to understand that you are partly connected to the success of your work in this marketplace of ideas. You're partly responsible for getting those downloads and citations by you connecting in a professional way on a professional platform and adding to the uh, dialogue going on in your field. So yes, it is a circle. It's, it starts uh, as soon as the last article is published or as, as soon as the last book's published and uh, it starts all over again. The effectiveness of the technique, uh, the image there of the dial that you've just spoken about is really tied to a sort of consulting model. Now, inside of education, especially in the Anglo-American sphere, but it's spreading throughout Europe, it, it, it's well known that you can turn to, let's say, a writing center, which has a tutoring slash consulting type model as well. In fact, very many people at writing centers are called writing consultants. So <laughs> there's a clear parallel there. Uh, but the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is that for assistance of this sort to really be effective, this connection to the client or the student or the scientist, however we may want to name them, is crucial. I mean, your example there of you know bringing a two up to a four or a seven up to a nine depends entirely upon you being familiar with that particular person. So this this would be, in my opinion, one of those arguments against the classroom type or course structured type um, instruction to get people writing better. I, I, I'm much more a firm believer in this approach that you seem to embody as well uh, at your particular company. I, I'm, I'm with you completely. Most people, first of all, we know there are many different learning styles and I uh, acknowledge that and understand uh, the importance of your learning, of your educational material being geared towards your learning style. But most people, or let me qualify a little further, many people prefer a dialogue and being able to ask questions. Why is there such frustration with automated phone systems? Because you're not getting the answer quick enough and you have a specific question and you simply want somebody to tell you the answer. And when you are in dialogue with somebody one-on-one -on -one, or even in a small classroom setting, you are more likely to uh, be able to get your specific question answered. And by the time you're at this point in your career, you've probably uh, achieved your terminal degree. You've probably achieved stature in your field you know the things that you need help with or you know the points that you need to have answered. And while that may be in a book or it may be in a course, uh, by having a dialogue with people one-on-one -on -one in a small group setting or with a tutor inside an academic setting or even with a coach uh, or the like is going to be the shortest distance between two points. Uh, I'm a fan of it. I know some people would prefer the text uh, or a website 
And uh, I think that's valuable. And uh, I think that uh, that's the way they should go. But others should feel that speaking with somebody or learning in a small group setting uh, is really the shortest distance between them and great results for their work. I mean, I mean, learning styles is definitely something to bring in there. I, I entirely agree. But there's times where I start to wonder, and there's certainly other scholars out there of communication who you know have written on the same topic that there may not there may be something special about communication activities. So simply just reading and writing to take uh, the focus of, of of scholarly publishing, which sort of separate them out as requiring also certain sorts of service, help, or education, which wouldn't work elsewhere. So just to be concrete here, I mean, if you go off to YouTube and you want to find out how to use a new app or different sorts of technology, this is a fantastic resource. And there are some excellent pages out there to help you do that. But every app is actually exactly the same. You know, I mean, you have different aims for how to use it, but the framework within which you need to work is is given by the structure of the app. It's not quite the same when it comes to even something as structured as, let's say, the English language, <laughs> um, because the the possibilities there verge on infinite, and the complexity of the problems don't categorize very easily. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there seems to be the, acti the activity of communicating a bit like many of the researching activities that are go on in labs and so on, sort of require this mentoring or coaching type model, don't they? I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, just think about when you're going to the person in the office next door, you're essentially asking them. Uh, to be mentor for that question or that situation, or you're asking them to coach you or consult with you on that particular question or situation. So I think it's the natural inclination when uh, you need to invent a wheel for you to turn to somebody who's already invented the wheel and ask them the way they did it. And whether that is in that small group setting uh, or one-on-one -on -one with a coach or with the person in the office next door, it's the uh, it's the thing that has the greatest comfort level. Uh, I will follow up with one more comment, and that is, if your institution has an academic writing or publishing center, first of all, uh, uh, a kudos or applause to them because not every institution uh, does. Uh, you should uh, acknowledge those people and the assistance that they're given, although that's their job. Um, and I, I say the same thing about research librarians, which can be a, 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 a tremendously beneficial to a project uh, in its completeness and its literature review. So these are good people to acknowledge at the holiday for holidays for being behind the scenes and, uh, and the, the real pros that uh, support authors, researchers and academics. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point there, John. I, I entirely would highlight that as well. This this idea of recognizing research libraries and and academic services that that look to help um, different dis people from different disciplines um, communicate their work. Um, I know my listeners will know that I, I work together with scientists, helping them write. And and early on, as I started this new venture, one of the first bits of positive feedback that came was. It's nice to have an office or, you know, a part of our department to turn to when there's a communication question. 
And many people were like suddenly saying, you know, hey, communication is now on our map. So it, it is worth recognizing this fact that where these existing structures are there, acknowledge them, use them, build those to start with. Absolutely. When I think of basic questions that I get all the time, uh, I'm going to circle back to the predatory publishing one. I, I will get random questions from my YouTube channel where somebody says, I'm uh, desperate to get published. I found this journal. Do we think that, do you think this is a good one? Is it a predatory publishing journal? Uh, and what is predatory publishing? And these are such basic questions for me and some basic questions uh, that can be answered relatively straightforward. There's some great services out there that list responsible journals and list irresponsible or predatory publications. And there are some great rules of thumb as to determine very quickly whether, when you're looking at a journal um, a website, whether it is legitimate, semi-legitimate, or completely a junk. So these things are basic questions and the uh, tools uh, are available. It's just really connecting with somebody such as your writing center or uh, somebody in the publishing area that uh, feels these are basic questions, although you may not. So getting this training, getting that connections with people or with your educational tools are really vital. It's going to save you a lot of heartache and uh, increase the uh, chances of publication and the chances of uh, better results. At this opportunity, talking about structures in place at, at research institutes or at uh, universities, I'd, I'd like to broaden again the view out to all of those services. Um, maybe we'll leave, let's say, the books out um, or the other sort of online resources out. I'm thinking more of course offerings, um, interactive type um, services, and of course, consulting or coaching or any other thing like that. Um, because you made a comment there, which I found interesting, that it's fairly much in its infancy. And I would entirely agree there because it's in around the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, that a whole movement came up that took on the name of academic literacies, which relates very closely to this idea of academic services and research libraries. And in fact, some of the first cooperations in academic lit uh, literacies were between libraries and, let's say, writing centers or other type services. Um, so it appears that we're talking about a two decade type movement where, you know, at least inside of the institutions, there's been this recognition that, you know, how academia works and how the entire publishing system works isn't being taught and it's not obvious. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thinking now perhaps out into the private sector where, where you are, could you speak a bit more to this, this timeline that I've just drawn up and this idea of an infancy, uh, to this, this set, these sets of services? Yes, over the past 10 years, you've seen standalone companies emerge. I mean, two that come to mind are Inago and Editage that offer a variety of services. They're most known for simply editing a manuscript, maybe a English as a second language type of manuscript, but they now offer a wealth of other services all the way from conception to plagiarism checking to, uh, you know, matching up with the best journal. So these are uh, companies that offer these type services, and many times they're 
they are competing with each other on fee or the basic service versus an advanced service. Um, they now have extended their reach into the large corporate-owned publishers. I'll use Elsevier as an example. So many of the large publishers either partner with these type companies or they've offered their own services to uh, uh, authors uh, or potential authors to either improve their manuscript or to increase their chance of publication. Uh, I don't know that anybody gives that final guarantee, but they do tout some impressive statistic, statistics. So these companies have really just emerged, in my mind, in the last 10 years. I'm sure there are some that are much older than that, but they've just become prominent, I would say, in the last 10 years. Parallel to that are the cottage industry of people such as myself and others that are out there working with people one-on-one. -on -one. In regard to coaching, for those people that are interested in book or monograph or textbook writing, there is a much bigger industry for coaching or publishing consultants for people for larger projects such as that. And then when you get into trade or mass market publishing, there's an even larger cottage industry for people to work with coaches or consultants to increase their chance of getting a publisher to give them a contract. But still on the journal article or manuscript phase, there are people that can work for uh, the quality of the message to start or the quality of the manuscript or finding the best match um, uh, for, from a journal point of view. Either way, I'm interested to see if we were fortunate enough to have this conversation, Daniel, 10 years from now about what the industry looks, looks like because I'm sure it will consolidate, but it'll be bigger and more formalized and, uh, and probably have a, a, a greater impact on authors that are in the middle tier of their careers. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting thought <laughs> in 10 years because of how far we've come, just as you've sketched out there in 10 years. And what I found really interesting was, um, for instance, I know that people here at my institute have talked about author services, and, and I think they were thinking also a little bit further back in their career. So maybe author services from about 10 years ago, where, you know, it was it was edited. It was, um, these also weren't um, L1 users, as I would call them, people who grew up speaking English. Um, so it was edited and put into, let's say, proper English. And when they got it back, they realized all kinds of terminology, all kinds of usage had been kind of, yeah, misplaced and, and misguidedly corrected, quote unquote. So a lot of work had to go back into the manuscript to make sure that it actually fit the research community that it was designed for. So these authors were savvy and their communication skills and maybe just needed a bit of help with, with the English. But the, the, the development there that you've talked about has shown that these editing services are are recognizing that, you know, they move from conception through editing all the way to perhaps post-publication and so on. It's, it's a recognition that this entire complex communication process has very many moving parts. Yeah, we've heard the analogy of a person dressed in uh, a poor suit of clothes or an expensive suit of clothes and it being judged by these uh, peripheries. Uh, and while that's unfortunately the world we live in that does judge sometimes by externals, um, this is the 
academic writing and publishing version of the exact same thing. At the end of the day, a great idea, a great study, a great finding is, is still a great idea and a great study and a great finding. All you're doing is increasing the chance it'll land on fertile ground, to mix my metaphors here, and to um, have the best results possible. So whether it's through the editing process of making sure it's presented as, as uh, pristine as possible, or through the coaching and consulting process of finding the best match for the journal, uh, getting the most enthusiasm from your editors, uh, and having it um, get the best results from uh, a citation and a, a download point of view. That's really what we're talking about here. You're, but at the end of the day, a great idea is still a great idea. To close out, John, one of the aims of this podcast, um, I've, I've repeated it often here in this place, is to, as I say, help the research. And that's a really broad sort of aim, which may be a good thing or a bad thing. But in any case, my, my thinking is, is that it'd be great if authors could just submit better, if peer reviewers could make better decisions, if, speaking to our topic of today, if the, let's say, ancillary, ancillary services out there for, um, you know, communication, editing, and publishing, and so on in 10 years really made even a finer match to the needs of authors and so on. Um, well, whatever the case may be, I'd like to give my guests a, a small platform to speak to well, what is the thing that they would suggest? So with this idea of, well, let's get this done better, what would be perhaps one group that you might single out, one practice that you might single out and say, hey, if we could just change this? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the nature of peer review recently and uh, the peer review process specifically because of COVID about whether that's broken. Um, the one thing I would say that helps an author specifically the middle tier author who is most reluctant to do this is for you to feel really comfortable with sharing your early work and your later work on a more frequent and a wider basis that the, the, the novice author or the reluctant author or the author that's, as I said, in the middle of their career, I'm going to use the word shy again. The authors sometimes are very shy about sharing it until they think it's absolutely perfect. And if we're really talking about the best quality ideas, the best quality work, sharing maybe the concept with close friends early on, and then a draft or an outline with colleagues early on, and then the draft of it completely written, and then the final version, to do as much of your own review to head off uh, rabbit holes you might be going down or head off um, poor expressions of your ideas as early on is really essential. Feel very, very comfortable with developing that network of people in your institution, but most importantly, outside your institution. Feel free to com uh, feel comfortable sharing it. Don't feel, as sometimes you'll see novice authors feel, somebody's going to steal my idea. Uh, it's unlikely. So uh, feel comfortable sharing your ideas, sharing the draft, sharing the outline, and 
getting and being open to the uh, comments or suggestions that you hear back because people make feel very comfortable with uh, connecting with authors, connecting with colleagues, connecting with friends. This is going to make the best possible work. Do your peer review yourself early on and it will increase the it will increase the quality of the work incrementally or to a significant degree. So that's one of the things I might suggest is to see that early on self-peer review uh, as an essential part of what you're doing and it's gonna it's gonna produce great results. Well, thank you very much for that, John. That is John Bond of Riverwinds Consulting. This is goodbye from me to John. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thank you so much for your time. And this is goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.